off and running one more time. June the 11th is where we are today, lecture discussion number 286 on the book of Romans. And we are still engaged in the mystery that is the ultimate cause of Satan's rebellion. That's, or if you prefer, the whys of Satan or why Satan has done what he has done. Why did Satan conceive the plan that he has? And what, why this specific plan? Why is this the plan that Satan has utilized to prove something about himself? Uh, and that includes, of course, all the killing, the murder, the lying, and the destruction that he has uh, brought forth onto the earth and in the heavenly realm. So that is the subject. Why did Satan conceive this plan, his plan, that is this plan? And sometimes this subject is referred to as the trail of the serpent um, or the tracing of Satan through Scripture or the five I wills of Satan, Isaiah 14, 13 through 14, in any uh, and, and all of these titles are acceptable, acceptable in the descriptions that are, are applicable to our current little endeavor here. You pick the one that you like the best while I advertise. And yes, I know that we are moving very, very slow through this subject. We have a very large pile of stuff that waits us after this childbirth, the symbol of childbirth. I brought up a few weeks ago that childbirth is not just a symbol of, uh, many see it as a symbol of the body ejecting the soul. It is also a symbol of Christ himself, so it is very complicated. That's probably the most prominent task that, we, that awaits us, but we also have the bulls of Bashan, the city of Jerusalem, past and future battles of Jerusalem. Jerusalem, of course, is is a derivative of Jehovah Jireh Salam, which means that God provides himself for peace. And, and the peace that he provides himself for, of course, is our reconciliation, the reconciliation of the believing. So God will provide himself for our sake. So there's going, there was a first battle of Jehovah Jireh Salam, and there is a last battle. We have determined when the last battle will be. That's in the end of the book of Revelation. That is the second Magog-Gog. There's the first Magog-Gog. Some people think that's the first battle of Jerusalem, but I don't believe that's the case. Where is the first battle of Jerusalem? We will uh, take that on in the weeks to come. Uh, I put on the board last week, dead goats and sheep. That's got to be dealt with as well. And the angelic host, of course, a little bit of that today. Fallen and unfallen angelic beings. The Nephilim. The why of the Nephilim. All of that, some of that today. And I will suggest that the attack of Genesis 6 is far more pervasive and extensive than typically represented. What I mean by that is Genesis 6 is this incredibly enigmatic, mysterious thing. And at the end of it, God floods the entire earth. The earth is covered with water as a result of Genesis 6, primarily. Now, Genesis 6 is the culmination. But what happens in Genesis 6 is so extraordinary, so evil, that God says, no, that's enough. Buries the earth in water. And that is the second time the earth is discovered in the first uh, six chapters, or first seven chapters, actually, if you wish, of Genesis, that it is covered in water. So I have Genesis 6, actually Genesis 7, 6 and 7, and I have Genesis 1. Both of those have the earth covered in water. So what's the obvious question? If water has covered the earth at Genesis 1 and water has covered the earth at Genesis 6, you tell me, what should I ask next? Don't ever raise your hand. Congratulations. Yeah. Is the reason, is the reason for the covering of the water the same in both? And if it is, what's that reason? So, it's a securitous trip. I got that. This is, uh, but this is one of the major goals to solve that question. That's one of the major goals of the investigation into the motives of Satan. And that, again, to consider the similarities of Genesis 1, 2 and Genesis 6, 7. And Genesis 6 and 7. And, and those of you who have read and spent a lot of time in Genesis 6, 1 through 2, you, you know that this is extraordinary scripture here. This almost unimaginable words that are here trying to wrap 
your mind about what occurred at Genesis 6, uh, 1 and 2 is incredibly difficult to do. It's almost unimaginable, as I said. Mankind began to exponentially explode in population. That's what it says. That did not go undetected. The population of humanity was, was burgeoning at a rate where someone could do the math. And very and very intelligent beings that don't need phones to add and subtract, and who can do it in their minds, who don't need any mechanical or electrical device in order to computate or spell or communicate. If I had a phone, and I don't have a phone, one of these cell phones, and people ask me all the time, you don't have a cell phone? Are you a Luddite, Neanderthalic? What are you? Yes, the answer is yes. One, I would lose it in five minutes. I would. I lose everything I have. Bill and I, all the years we worked together, we lost our keys at least once a week, didn't we? I'd lose every phone I was given. Well, there's tracking devices. I would lose the tracking device system. I, there's no way. And plus, plus, I don't want to be found most of the time. Also, I, I don't want to be enslaved by it. Are people enslaved by their phones? I'm ranting now, aren't I? I'm completely off. Yeah, absolutely they are. I don't want to be you of them. Sorry. I will watch TV instead. <laughs> that makes me morally superior in some way. <laughs> okay. We're going to consider Genesis 1, 2, and Genesis 6 and chapter 7 because both of these are water-covering events, and we are going to figure out this unbelievable reason, I guess, for lack of a better thing. So there's this explosion. Mankind is, is growing at a rate that can be calculated, and the rate is changing. It's getting faster and faster and faster, and the sons of God, it says, saw this rapid multiplication. And they saw that the daughters were beautiful. The daughters of men were beautiful. And they took wives for themselves, all of which they chose, all of whom they chose. And that is very similar language to Genesis 3, 6. So now what have I got? In other words, they saw and they took. That's very similar to Genesis 3, 6. The woman saw and she took. In Genesis 6, 1 and 2, they saw and they took. So I have now added Genesis 3.6 to this situation. Eve saw, or the woman saw, the fruit was beautiful. They saw the daughters were beautiful. Took of the fruit and took of the daughters. In both cases, a choosing occurs. Sons of God, in that context, is defined. Who are the sons of God is the first question everybody asks about that, and I think that it is without debate. Sons of God is a term that is overwhelmingly used of only one group, and that's who? That's angels, angelic beings. In all of Scripture, that is what it is overwhelmingly used for, sons of God's the sons of gods are angels, and it's very, very difficult to argue. Every, otherwise, you have to say, no, in this one spot, it's not angels. When it's angels everywhere else, but not here. And therefore, Genesis 6, 1 through 7 is describing the cosmological mixing of angelic beings and human women. What's the obvious question now? Why? Jude 6, these are the angels that did not keep their natural estate. Some will say that it is not the cosmological mix. Cosmological, just a fancy way, a theological term, saying that we have angelic beings and humanity, human women, intermingling. That's a cosmological difference because these are of the heavenly estate. That's a different cosmology. And we... And the, and the, uh, uh, humanity has the physical estate. So this is a mixing of cosm cosmologies. There's another view called the sociological mixing view. And that is the view that what Genesis 6 is really talking about is the ruling class, or the kingdom, if you wish, or the uh, 
the ones who have ruling heritage, which would be the kings and princes, have gone into the daughters of the peasant class or the lower class and have mixed. So the ruling class mixing with the underclass. They'll say it is a sociological mixing. And the other view that is very uh, difficult to defend along with that is that this is actually believers and unbelievers. That's asserted by many. In other words, the descendants of Seth and the pagans are mixing. And these two positions, the sociological and the, uh, and the uh, uh, believing, non-believing view, are easily shredded and dispatched. I would recommend you not waste your time. There's another, a fourth view, actually, and that is the demon-possessed view, which has found some favor. That being that the fallen angels, the angels who have chosen Satan and his objectives, his plan, his motivation, his methodologies, they descended upon the earth and they possessed and entered into men. In other words, a sweeping amount of angelic beings that are fallen have come down to earth now and have entered into humanity only the men, because the angels saw the daughters as beautiful and because there was this multiplication. So they possessed men and men alone, and these men take the wives, and the resultant of that is these monstrosities occur, what's called the Nephilim, are the mighty heroes of renown, the mighty men against God. So there was a... The children of this union, of this mixing, is, is a monstrous result. And I think it's unlikely, the, the demon possession view, I think it's also implausible. I know it's popular. I'll get the mail. There's just one of many questions. Why would the demons only possess men? Why not just possess the women, cut the men completely out of it? What's the plan here? And how can that demon possession cause a mutation on this scale of just men? And also result in this universal, murderous, violent, wicked, continual evil that has occurred on the earth as God describes it in Genesis 6. The text emphasizes over and over, if you wish to follow the trail, that this is an unnatural uniting of angels and women and tells us why it's this way. We can figure out why the angels have done this, the fallen angels. And it ultimately ends with God covering the earth with water. That's our situation. God ends this mess. I have angels that the cosmological view is correct. I believe that it is that left their natural estate and they take human women as wives and there is a monstrous result that is, causes a tremendous amount of violence and evil and killing and murder and blood. And God ends it. God ends these kinds of things. God creates goodness. Goodness devolves very quickly into evil. And then he ends the evil. That's the pattern. The wicked don't like that. The wicked hate the ending of sin. I've been asked many, many times in my so-called career by uh, atheistic people, scholars supposedly, but we'll leave that up to some other debate. But they have asked me, how can a good God cause all this evil or allow all of this evil? It's a very common question. And I said, if he stopped you, you would hate him for it. Because they will. They do not want God to end evil. I have asked hundreds of times over the years to these kinds of, in these kinds of uh, arguments and debates, does God have the authority to rule over you? That's a yes or no question. Does he, does God, your creator, have the authority to rule over you? It's a yes or no question, as I just said. How many do you think who have been asked that question, and I will say that everyone has, either directly or indirectly, I'm ruining your trial right now. Because this is a question that he will ask you from the throne. Do I have the right to rule over you? What percentage of the human population will answer yes? What do you think? Well, let's ask a different question. How big is the no group compared to the yes group? The no group is massive. They do not want him to rule over them. Because if he rules over them, what will he do? 
He will end sin. No, not going to happen, baby. They hate that. How many angels, how many men, how many women, when the question comes, that does God have the right to rule over you, they answer no. How many angels answered no? We can count. They tell us. How many millions of that is that? So back to our other subject. What makes a woman choose a fallen angel? Notice how I worded that. Now, some object to my question being worded that way on the basis of took. They took wives for themselves for all whom they chose. They say, well, they took the wives against their will. Well, let's read it. Is that true? Let's go find out. We have the story. Genesis 6, 1 through 5. Now, it came to pass when men began to multiply. Aha! Multiply. That seems to be important, doesn't it? Why is that important? When men began to multiply on the face of the earth and the daughters were born to them, not the sons. Did they have sons born to them? Yes, but when the daughters were born to them. So, daughters seem to be pretty important. Here's some real interesting evidence. It's about, so far, it's about multiplication of daughters. Now, it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born to them that the sons of God, the angels, the fallen angels that leave their natural estate, saw the daughters of men that they were what? Beautiful. There's your reason. That's why God flooded it. Because of multiplication, because of daughters that were seen to be beautiful by the sons of God who are angels. That's what causes this. If you want to think of it that way, cause and effect. It's hard to do that with a God that's outside of time and omniscient, but we'll use a human perspective. I'll read it all again. Now, it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit will not strive with man forever. Who gets the blame here? What doesn't he say? Why doesn't he say, My spirit shall not strive with these nasty, dirty angels that came down here and took these poor women against their will? Now what he says. Who got the blame? My spirit shall not strive with man forever. Why the men? What are they doing? They're just standing around. Some angel came down and took their wife from them. Is that, is that what you thought? Because that's not what the text is telling you, is it? For he is indeed flesh, yet his days shall be 120 years. So he gets another 120 years. The angels come down. They take the daughters of men. The men hand over their daughters to the angels. Does this sound familiar anywhere else? This man, angels, daughters, people want them. Where are we now? What else we got to add now to my list? I should have made a bigger box. Now in Genesis 19, aren't I? The stories are replicated not because they didn't happen. They did happen. These are literally true events. But you see the process continually rises up. Ask, why is this the method? What is this method? This is Satan's plan. He has thoughtfully figured things out to prove something about himself. What is it that he has proved? The Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh, yet his days shall be 120 years. He's going to give him another 120 years. There were giants on the earth in those days. Okay, now we end up with giants. Are they good giants? Are they carnivorous giants? Let's just ask that. If they are carnivorous giants, what do they eat? What do you think? There were giants on the earth in those days and, and also afterwards when the sons of God came to the daughters of men and they bore children to them. Those giants were the mighty men, the Nephilim, 
who were of old, men of renown. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great. Who's, who's wicked here? Is it the women that are wicked? Is it the angels that are wicked? Is it the Nephilim that are wicked? No, it's the men that are wicked. Why doesn't he say, then the Lord saw that the angels that fell, that came to the earth were wicked, the daughters were really wicked, and the Nephilim were wicked? Again, who gets the blame? So ask yourself, what was it that the men were doing? Where else did this happen? God intervened here. He flooded the place. Go find the other places he intervened. He blew up Sodom and Gomorrah. He scattered them at Babel. He intervenes in the tribulation. So what's coming? How evil is it going to get? What's the threshold? And that every intent of the thoughts of the heart of man was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping things and birds of the air. For I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. The question becomes, how much willful participation do the men and the women have in this agreement with the angels? If it, in fact, was an agreement, and I think the evidence is that it is, how much collaboration is there? Is there none? Do you have the position that the men, the, the husbands of, of the children, the fathers of the daughters that were beautiful, how much collaboration did they have with the angels that came? Is it none? Is it a little bit? Is it half? Is it a lot? Let me describe them again. The, every intent of the thought of the hearts of man was only evil continually. So how, what kind of men am I dealing with here? Great wickedness. Incredible. God does not in, intervene very often. When he does, pay attention to it. Did he intervene at Genesis 3, 1 through 6 when Satan confronts Eve? Couldn't God have come down? Satan descends, does he not? He comes to the, to the, to the wife of Adam, the woman. He deceives her. Why didn't God just nail him? Bang! Pull him out. The daughters of men are being taken by the Fallen angels, God does not intervene there either. He does not intervene at three sixteen or three one through six of Genesis. He does not intervene at Genesis six one through seven. You ask, start asking why didn't he intervene? You would think that God would stop Satan from attacking Eve and stop the plundering fallen angels from seizing the innocent women of earth, unless they weren't innocent. But he doesn't do it. Ask why not. That will help you figure out why not. That will help you figure out what Satan is up to, if you will. You decide why he doesn't intervene while I back up a little here. I've outkicked my defensive coverage again. The preponderance of those willing to offer opinions on Genesis 6, and there's lots of viewpoints on Genesis 6, they point to Genesis 3.15 as the substrate upon which the acts of Genesis 6 are formed. Let me repeat that. What happened in Genesis 3.15, they will say to you, is what Genesis 6 reflects. So we'll go back to Genesis 3.15. You know what it is. It's probably the most famous verse in all of the Old Testament. If it isn't, it should be. Genesis 3.15, of course, is, and I will put enmity between you and the woman. This is the trial of Satan. This is the sentencing of Satan. This is what he receives as a, um, a sentence, as a punishment. God says this to Satan. I will put enmity between you and the woman. Now, that seems like it's out of left field. We're talking about you have attacked the woman and you have destroyed the woman. You think you didn't, but you thought you would in your attempt to destroy the man. And you were unable to destroy the man. He was not deceived. And God says, I will put animosity, I will put conflict between you and the woman, Satan. Why? 
And he goes on to say, between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise your head. In other words, the seed of the woman will kill the uh, seed of the serpent, and the seed of the serpent shall bruise the heel of the seed of the woman. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. From this, the sentencing of Satan, the punishment of Satan, we learn many, many things, but foremost is that Satan's going to do have something. What's he going to have? Satan is a what? He's an angelic being. What's he get? He gets something here that he might not have known he was going to get. In fact, I'm going to suggest to you that he had no idea this was coming. What's he get? What did he learn for the first time, Satan? At his sentencing, at his trial. What kind of sentence did he think he was going to get? Versus what did he get? He's told he's going to be dust forever. He's going to be in the dust forever. But he also, this happens. I'm going to propose to you that it has caught him totally by surprise. There's no mention of anything like this prior to this. Bang, here it comes. Foremost, Satan, the anointed cherub, the former king of Eden, will have a seed. That is a gigantic, what are we talking about? You don't have a seed. Who has seeds? What is seed? Seed is children. Satan's going to have one. What's the obvious question? There will be a child of Satan and the child and the seed of the child of the woman, the child. So we'll have a child of Satan and I'll have the child, the seed of the woman. Woman, They're going to be in conflict and the Satan child ultimately gets slain by the, by the woman child, if you will. So the son of the serpent is killed by the son of the woman, if you want to think of it that way. That's the ultimate end. I think Satan was stunned by this. And it is considered that this declaration by God, God spoke it. What's next question? Who heard it? So who else was surprised by this? I mean, think about it. Just think about it's court reporter and the judge says that you, Steve, are going to have a child. I'm going to go, are you kidding? See how it worked out last time? I'm kidding. They're not here? Nope, they are here. Uh-oh. <laughs> but just imagine the court reporters. How many court reporters? What's the first thing the court reporters write down? Satan gets a sentence. He's in big trouble. Uh, this is the angel, 6 o'clock news. And guess what we learned today? God said Satan gets seed. Gets a seed. It's, and again, this is considered, this declaration by God is at the trial of Satan is considered to be the underlying basis for Genesis 6 by many commentators. I'm going to ask some few questions about that. Let me rephrase it. In other words, the angels of God that are allied by Satan or with Satan are induced, drawn to the beautiful daughters of the men in order to pollute the whole of humanity, contaminate the process Along this kind of logic, if every woman is a, is taken, then every child is corrupted, then there's no seed of the woman that can be born. Have you heard that, that position? It's very common. And hopefully I have characterized that view accurately enough. If I haven't, I'll have somebody write me and tell me that I'm an idiot. Uh, but you're going to find this or find something that's close closely adheres if you take the time to do the research this is the is again maybe predominant maybe the majority opinion on all the available commentaries that I've ever found on Genesis 6 now having said that this position has obvious flaws the mathematics are such that this could only be an aspect of the plan i won't disagree that this might have some tertiary value to the plan but I don't think it has the mathematics in order to prevail. It can't be the primary plan. The Bible is clear. The daughters were beautiful. That, that's, 
That's the inducement. That's the prompting. The multiplication. The fact that they're daughters and the daughters were beautiful. The sons of God saw the multiplying beautiful daughters. To the sons of God, you've got to explain how is it they, they looked down, angels looked down and saw daughters of men, said they were beautiful, and attacked them. Why would angels want human women, even if they're beautiful? Have they never lived with one? I am kidding. I, whoa, I worked so hard on that. That was, is the congregation still awake? And is anyone left? <laughs> let the audience, let the record show that, oh, Matt's come in time. What did you bring, Matt? I hope brisket. I'm going to need it. Why would angels want human, beautiful women? What would make them want women? They have learned something prior to this. What did they learn? Beautiful and multiplying are the predominant factors. Not the attention to affect the lineage purity of the seed of the woman. That's not mentioned. It doesn't say the angels of God looked down and said, wow, there's women here. We can pollute the lineage of the seed of the woman. They don't say that in the text. They say they're beautiful. That's the motivation. So beautiful and multiplying is where we have to begin with respect to the motivation of the sons of God, not the lineage. I will concede that the... the that that's a possibility. It's so popular, I hate to set it aside. I have even talked about it before in the past. But look at beautiful and multiplying. We do have to address the behold, uh, or the behold of Genesis 6. So let's do that now. Let's fit it in here really quick. Genesis 6.12. Let's start at 9. No, let's start at 11. The earth was also... The earth also was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. So God looked upon the earth. Actually, that word there in the Old King James is, Behold, God looked upon the earth, and indeed it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. So I have this behold. Let me do it right. Behold, all flesh, everything flesh, certainly all humanity is corrupt. Their way on the earth. All flesh. When you see that behold, and again, it's only in the Old King James. That's why the Old King James is so valuable to you. Whatever comes next after a behold is of the greatest significance. It has to be approached with awe. It, it will be a solemn, powerful truth. It was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted his way upon the earth. Man was corrupt. All flesh was corrupt. The Hebrew word translated corrupt is often rendered destroyed. All flesh was destroyed. There's a con contamination element here. Noah is described as righteous. That, work, that word means uh, uncontaminated. All flesh destroyed. How is it destroyed? How is this the case? Is this human beings only and therefore a moral destruction or is it also a physical destruction? Had all flesh been physically destroyed? Obviously not because Noah isn't. There's some animals that aren't. They go in the ark. So how long, let's ask this question, if this is physical and moral destruction, if it's both, how long did it take from Adam? How long before all flesh from Adam is destroyed in the eyes of God? Most estimates place the flood at about what, you know? Approximately 1,650 years from Adam. So in 1,650 years, God declares that all flesh on the earth is corrupted, destroyed. Um, and I asked, how long did it take? When was the point in which all flesh had become corrupt? Did all flesh, did it take 1,650 years? That's the flood. How long before all the flesh is corrupt? What do you think? What's that? Bill says 120 years. This is the question of 
how long did God wait? How long did God wait before he destroyed a creation that had been completely and totally corrupted with evil, wicked, continual murder? When did he finally pull the trigger, if you will? When did the earth become filled with violence, Genesis 6.11? Filled with violence, it says. We know that God was merciful, as Bill points out, for 120 years minimum. He gave this, He gave them 120 years in a totally corrupt situation. But when did they reach it? Eventually, at some point in the 600, 1,650 years approximately, the earth was saturated and soaking in blood, evil continually, never a pause in evil. There's no pause. It's constant, total evil. That sounds like what? The lake of fire. God turns this place into the lake of water. Is that a coincidence? It's soaking in blood, the earth is. Never a pause in evil. The wickedness of man was exceedingly great. Now back to the previous question. The sons of God came to the earth, took the daughters of men as wives. What was the status of man at that time? How evil was man? When did the angels hit? So you got your timeline, right? I've got Adam. Here he is. I got 1,650 years. I got flood. I'll draw a boat. There's my boat. Looks good, doesn't it? And I'll put a lid on it. But really, the, 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 the description is floating casket. So, pretty darn good. When did the angels hit? What do you think? Here? 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 When did God say, you'll have a seed? When did the angels hit? When men began to explode exponentially. When was that? When did all men become, when did men become incredibly violent and evil? We have Enoch, we have Methuselah. Methuselah dies right here. Boom. The name Methuselah means upon the death of this guy, you will all die in a flood. That's what Methuselah means. That's his name. Essentially, I, I characterize it a little bit for humor's sake. Because comedy is hard in this business. But I think I can defend the fact that upon the death, judgment is the name. So, so Enoch names his son upon his death, judgment. So that's 300, that's 965 years, right? 969? So, you can start making your timeline. Do so, there'll be a test on Friday. See how close you come. The sons of God came to the earth, took the daughters of men as wives because the daughters were beautiful. And because of the human ability to multiply rapidly, that's what's motivating them. And the earth which was to be filled, Genesis 1.28, with life, instead had become filled with death, Genesis 6.11. So we had a filling, but not with life, but with death. Why did God not preemptively intervene? He had 1,650 years to stop this. He doesn't. Why 1,650? Before he turns it into the lake of evil. The lake of water. Clearly, evil is given a season. It always has been since weekend, since history. Evil is given time. Why does God give evil time at all? What's the reasoning behind him? Is he right to do so? Is it good to do so? The answer is yes, it is. Why is giving evil a season? Why is that good? What's the number one reason? Time for repentance. Absolutely right. It's, it's mercy. He gives time for repentance because that's what he does. Does God love the continually killing, soaking in blood, vicious, violent people? Yes, he does. What do we call that? Good news. Anyway, the fallen angels, a satanic horde, fixates on multiplying and on beautiful what is their advantage gained by this multiplication aspect? They know that they can produce seeds, don't they? 
How do they know that? They were told that at the trial of Satan. And the first thing they're writing down is, hey, it's possible for Satan to have seeds. What's the next obvious question? What about me? How many fallen angels were there? How many beautiful daughters are there? were there at the time? How's the ratio? Is it one beautiful daughter per fallen angel? Or is it 50, 100, 200, 500? Which side, which is the winner? Who has the best choice? The daughter go, I want that angel. I don't want you. You got too many faces, too many wings. I want this guy. Did the fallen angels acquire human physical form? That ultimately is the question. It seems that this is a requirement, doesn't it? To have a seed, I have to acquire human physical form. I don't think the demon possession view can answer these questions, so I'm not even addressing it, but you can ask me later. How did the fallen angels acquire human physical form? Well, let's just take Satan, because he's the one this is all about, right? And yes, I will speed up now, because it's getting late. In Satan's case, the evidence suggests that he's a combination. The Bible is leads us in that direction. He is not just a cherubim, not just the anointed cherub, but he is also a seraphim. Seraphim, uh, let me put the, hopefully I spell it right. Where can I put it? I think that's correct. How did I spell it? Yeah, I think I got it right. I can't, I don't have a, Confirmation, but I think that's correct. Seraph is Hebrew. It means fiery ones or burning ones. And that's the word to, used also to describe the serpents that bite Israel with poisonous fiery results in Numbers 21.6. They are also called this serpents, they are called. You can see the seraphim serpent aspect, can't you? The seraphim are, seraphim are mentioned at Isaiah 6.2, and it is the singular mention in all of the Bible. So let's go here. The only place that you find a reference to the seraphim is in Isaiah 6.2. So we should read that. And I had to retire the Bible that has all my notes in it. I have thousands and thousands of notes, and I picked it up last week. And the duct tape failed, so I'm suing duct tape people. And it just spread all over, tore all the pages. So there it is. Now it's bound with rubber bands. And that's a shame, because now I have to transcribe this one. And that's not going to take me but maybe 25 years. Not looking forward to it. Not going to make it, am I? No. There is no... Crazy Becky is not giving me any hope at all here. Here we are, Isaiah 6.2. Above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. So note that the seraphim have six wings and one face. Cherubim are somewhat similarly described. They are the living creatures of Ezekiel 10 and I believe Revelation 4, though there's some disagreement there. They, though, only have four faces. Notice I said only. They have four faces. One of the four faces is that of a man. So I have seraphim who have the face of a man and six wings. I have cherubim who have wings and have four faces. And without the benefit of time to intensely solve the structures of cherubim and seraphim, we can only for today notice the characteristics that correspond, such as, um, and, and, and that has led most to conclude that the seraphim and the cherubim are quite similar and probably the same order. So it would be, it would be common to call a cherubim or a seraphim, a cherubim, and the reverse. And four faces may not indicate four separate heads. It could indicate one, one head that rotates faces. It's extremely possible for one head to alternate four faces, for example. And the point being, until we see a cherubim and a seraphim side by side, trying to formulate a, the likeness of either is, is unproductive. 
But Satan possesses the attributes of both. He possesses the serpent attribute, the fiery attribute, and he is the anointed cherub. And we now know, because of Genesis 3.15, he is able to have a seed. And they are called living creatures, not angels, the seraphim and the cherubim. And Satan is able to have a seed. So the obvious question that I asked a few minutes ago was what? I didn't ask it. But with whom? At the time of the trial, he's told he's going to have a seed. And the seed's going to be killed. The seed's going to do a lot of damage, but the seed's going to lose. God is going, it tells the entire angelic host and the two witnesses that are Adam and the woman, Satan is going to have a seed and that seed will be killed. So there is an end to this. I will defeat Satan. Did anybody believe him in the angelic host when God said, I will prevail? Because that's what he's saying. I will say to you, they did not. They believed that Satan would prevail. We'll get to that in a minute. I need the money. You should see my retirement fund. Okay, you can't see it. Because it's minuscule. I am running out of time, aren't I, Becky? Yes, I am. Becky is giving me lots of positive reinforcement today. <laughs> Hopefulness. You could have said no to one of those two questions, but you didn't. You just pounded me twice, didn't you? You're right. <laughs> Satan is able to have a seed with whom? What was God saying? God is saying, you will be defeated. What does God know, please? That Satan doesn't know everything. God knows everything. He knows all things. That's the point. That's how you know he's God. That's how you know that Peter recognized that Christ was fully God. He said to, to Christ, you know all things. Finally, then Christ says, okay, now you're eligible to be somebody that I can use. If you don't know that Christ is God, you are worthless. Sorry. Not really. Thanks, sorry. That's the case. That offended a lot of congregations, a lot of denominations today. Am I sorry about that? No. Because why? I'm running out of time, aren't I, Becky? I better get this out here. I actually worked that into the lecture, didn't I? That's pretty impressive for somebody of my advanced age. The implications of Genesis 3.15 would have reverberated throughout the angelic realm. Imagine the discussions. Satan will be able to produce progeny with a woman. That's what God said. At the time this was said by God, how many women were there available to him? One. Is that good news? Never mind. How many? There's one. And what would have been the natural, albeit shallow, assumption of the angelic host? What was Adam thinking when God said, you're going to have a seed? What was the woman thinking, Eve thinking? What was the angelic host thinking? Satan is going to have a seed. Remember that though Adam had fallen, Adam was not deceived. He was not defeated by Satan. That's important. The two kings of Eden have unfinished business here. Even Adam would have children. That God said. It would be assumed that one of these would be the seed of the woman. So where would the seed of the serpent originate? Keep in mind, these are incredibly intelligent beings. All of them, the angelic host, all concerned. They reason at a level that we cannot reach. They adjust and they pivot very quickly. If Satan would have a seed, what would be the most obvious of the obvious questions? Exactly that. Yes, what other angelic beings would likewise intermix with humanity? And why would they do it? Satan's reason may not be the same as their reason. I suspect this issue arose when God said loudly at Genesis 2.18, after previously, repeatedly, also very loudly, Genesis 1.4, 1.10, 1.12, 1.18, 1.21, 125. Don't be impressed. I wrote all those down. God says this very loudly. Good. This is good. This is good. This is good. This is good. He says it. Six times. Then he says this, Genesis 2.18. 
Good, 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 good. Who's listening to him? He's declaring it. This is good. 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 What's the obvious, obvious implication? Something is not good. What's not good at this time? I'm going to tell you that the entire angelic host is a mess. There's warring going on. Satan has fallen. So do your timeline. Test on Friday. Genesis 2.18, God said, It is not good for man to be alone. And the angels heard that. He talks very loudly. Not good for the man. The man would be given a helpmate. So I have all these sons of God, and they just heard that the man gets a helpmate. That would have been noticed by Satan and the sons of God. The timeline would be such, Job 38, 4 through 7. The sons of God saw the creation of earth. They saw the creation of earth and shouted for joy. Job tells us that. So the sons of God were before the creation of earth. As it applies to Adam or as it applies to Satan or as it applies to both. Two kings of Eden. You haven't heard me talk about that. You guys on the internet, it's in some lecture that Supper Dave has put somewhere on the internet. Good luck finding it. Anyway, at some point on the timeline, the sons of God, fallen and unfallen, notice how I say that, saw the creation of Adam and the physical organic system. How much time has expired between the fall of Satan and the physical organic systems? Or, did the Son of God, the sons of God, sorry, see the creation of Adam and therefore Eve and the animal kingdom and its multiplying and all these attributes as a response to the disarray that is in the angelic realm? Does that make sense? No. Try again. The angelic realm has made a mess. Satan has made a mess. They saw the creation of the earth. Now, at the time that they saw, was that an earth that was physical or mineral? Ezekiel 28. Was Satan the king of Eden or was Adam the king of Eden? Which came first? If if Satan is the king of Eden, then he's no longer the king of Eden. Why not? Something's happened. Now, we have, we have a new creation, if you will. We have, a, we have a creation. When does this fall? Where is the fall of Satan, the fall of the angelic host, and Adam? How much time? I have a view, as you know. I'll tell you. hundred years. In case you were wondering. Well, I can defend it some other day, not today. We have risk it today. I always get the longest questions on brisket or Kentucky Fried Chicken Day. Have you noticed that? It's some kind of subversive plot. Did the sons of God then see the creation of Adam and therefore the creation of Eve and the animal kingdom and all this multiplication and all of this physical attributes, did they see that as God addressing the fall of the angelic realm? Don't call it a response. He's omniscient. If the angels that remained looked upon the new king of Eden, which is Adam, as a solution, the angels that remained in the estate or would remain as a solution to the warring in the heavenly estate, they would be very joyful to see him created. How about the ones that are unfallen? They wouldn't be so joyful. And what of the fallen angels? They would see Adam as a threat to be destroyed. And if the seed of the woman was to be the one who defeats Satan, then it would not be beneficial for the fallen angels to have only one seed, would it? How many seeds are they going to want? They would want as many opposing seeds of their own, wouldn't they? And now I have powerful, gigantic, multiplying billions of killing machines on earth. Henry Morris determined mathematically with the rate of death being greatly reduced that there would be 8 billion beings, physical beings, on the earth at the time of the flood. I think he's right. So i got death everywhere. Now, see, if they could get 
billions of killing machines, they could exterminate the human race with them. Seems like a plan. Adam gets a help meet to help him. They're going to get help meets. Make logical sense? They would produce their own anti-human race. Remember, there were vestiges of these beings in the promised land when the Jews came. And the Jews were pretty afraid of them. That's why I asked, what does the legend say? The legends say that this is a carnivorous giant. So he was very frightening, these giants. Why did God allow mankind to choose Satan? Why didn't the angels choose why didn't the angels see that God would exterminate their offspring, if you will, the seeds of the sons of God? Why, why did God allow this to go on? Did you notice that mankind had become profoundly wicked? I write here, and I hope you did, because that's amazing. God is obvious. He's obvious. If the angels are obvious, and the Nephilim are obvious, then it's obvious that God is there, isn't it? Mankind choose God? Not very many. How many? Make the case seven. In case you were thinking eight. Looks like seven. Might be six. We'll have to see later. Story goes on. God was greatly saddened and grieved and groaning. Genesis 6, 6 through 7. That is exactly what he does at Gethsemane. God is there at Gethsemane, grieved at Gethsemane. He's grieved for the same reasons. Are you holding up fingers for me? Oh, she's holding up zero. Got to go. It looks like it looked as if Satan had prevailed at the flood, doesn't it? Which couldn't be possible. Which leads us back to Satan's logic. I said last Sunday that Satan is is proving something, and I asked, what is it that Satan is proving? Is it that all free will results in hatred of God? Is that what he's proving? I don't think so. That's doubtful. Satan is filled with conceit, pride, and ego. This is about Satan's assessment of his own capabilities. Does Satan think he can defeat God? How many of you think Satan is, Satan is so egotistical he thinks he can defeat an omniscient outside of time being? He's conceited. He's not stupid. I don't believe that he thinks he can defeat God. I don't think he can, thinks that he can kill God. Don't be silly. Satan knows God is omniscient, that God is outside of time. Satan is not stupid. It's men that are stupid. We're the stupid ones. We're so dumb we think we can kill God. We're the ones that put God is dead on bumper stickers. Satan doesn't do that. Christ said, I can resurrect myself whenever I want. You've got to be kidding. It is man who can be convinced that God can be killed. It's not Satan. Or that existence is autonomous from God. Man is the stupid one. Man thinks existence is separate from God. Man thinks God can be defeated. Satan does not. So what remains? What is it that is being like God to Satan? Keep in mind the Antichrist will be worshipped as God. Mankind will worship a creature. Does Satan want to be worshipped by mankind? Do you think yes or no? I don't think he does. I don't think he cares. Okay, I'll tell you why. I want to be worshipped by these idiots. What, how, what good is, I got a whole bunch of morons behind me. Go morons. I want a basketball team. The, the Bartlett morons. That's going to get me in trouble. Oh, God. I don't think that he is motivated by being worshipped by stupid people. It's not a big deal to be motivated by stupid people. It happens. He takes advantage of idiots. But I don't think that's his plan. I think this is about Satan's conceit. And I think this is about his filled with wisdom. His intellect is at the level of none other. No one has ever been described by God as full of wisdom. This is a brilliant, brilliant being that we cannot again comprehend the level at which he functions. We would be stunned. Michael looks at him with respect. The archangel. He is God's first, probably the very first creation. 
if the angels had a timeline just like humanity. So I think this is about Satan's intellect against God's omniscience. I think that is what it's about. Which means Satan is so conceited, he believes that he has the intellect to stalemate omniscience. Think about that. doesn't think he can defeat it. He thinks he can either approach a stalemate or a draw. That's how much conceit he has for his intellect. And I think that is why all of this killing. I think that's what explains the killing. Next week, if you come back.